encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, turn to Acts uh, chapter 10. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, you, of course, can uh, follow along on the screens or in the bulletin uh, that is in front of you. Uh, J.M. Barry uh, wrote uh, the book Peter Pan. Maybe you've actually read the book and not seen the movie. Uh, but he, at one point, wrote that all of the world is made of faith and trust and pixie dust. Well, I don't know about pixie dust, I'm not so sure about that, but life certainly does require a lot of faith and it does require a lot of trust. Uh, many of you know that we do a uh, discipleship program here at City Church uh, that's called Sonship and we typically have a cohort going on uh, at, at all times throughout the year. And one of the things that you learn very quickly about sonship is, is its heartbeat. And the heartbeat of sonship is that all of life is faith and repentance. Uh, so we think about it like footsteps, that faith and repentance are the footsteps that we constantly take as we live in relationship with God. And so all those things together have contributed to the fact that we've been looking at this idea of faith a lot this year. Uh, if you're with us during the summer, we looked at what it meant to have faith while living in exile. What does it mean to be uh, a people of faith when it feels like the world around us is apathetic or even at times oppositional to our faith? And so we looked at that this summer, and I hope in a couple weeks to go back to that topic as we look at the book of Esther, and hopefully that'll take us up to the Advent season. If you've been with us lately, you'll know we've been looking at uh, faith through the eyes of Peter. And one of the things that we've discovered is that when you think about faith and the faith journey, that you can't really think about it in a straight line. You can't really think about it as, as a gradual incline. You have to think about faith as a series of ups and downs, as, and Peter has, has showed that to us. Well, as we look at our passage this morning, we really see two conversions we're introduced to a man named Cornelius who is converted uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. He, his spirit is converted to Jesus. But in the process, we see that Peter, who we've been looking at all, the, all this time, uh, Peter has a conversion too, but his conversion is a conversion of his heart. So I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 10 this morning, and I have to read the whole chapter. I tried to break it up, but I just couldn't. So I had to apologize to Sean and, uh, and to all of you who are sitting here. But it's a powerful story, and I want us to get uh, the full sense of what's happening here. So I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 1 uh, to 48. And you can follow along uh, in your copy of God's Word. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian court, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter." He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. 
The next day, as they were journeying and approaching the city, Peter went up on the household about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth." In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven." Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise. And go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, "'Stand up, I too am a man.'" And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come." Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. 
They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. When Peter, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who'd come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is God's word. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you this morning. Help us to see the power of the gospel as it spread through that first century world, but help us also to experience that power, the power of the gospel in our own hearts and in our own lives. So visit us now as we reflect on your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Uh, A couple of months ago, uh, the company Febreze uh, put out a commercial that I thought was a genius commercial. And maybe you saw this commercial that was on TV not long ago. It asked this question, are you nose blind? Are you nose blind? And I didn't know what that was, so I had to really think about it. But apparently what that is, is this, that we can become so accustomed to a certain odor that we no longer smell it. And of course, it made me paranoid about what odors I've become accustomed to in my life that I'm not even smelling it. And I think there's probably some truth to this ingenious marketing ploy uh, that Febreze cooked up uh, in this commercial. Because I remembered back to when I was a college freshman and I had to move to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, to Amish country, Amish country for college. And one of the things I first noticed in the fall is just how bad the manure smell was. Uh, each fall, the Amish farmers would do their thing and you'd wake up in the morning and it just was, uh, it knocked you on your feet. It was such a strong smell. But by the time I was a senior in college, I didn't even notice it anymore. Why? I'd become nose blind to even that really strong smell. Well, I thought about that this week, and I thought about that in related to our passage, because this morning what I want to talk about is blind spots. Uh, Blind spots that we probably all have and blind spots that we see in our passage this morning. And how I want to define that is that a blind spot is a way of behaving or even a pattern of thinking that we just get so accustomed to that we don't even notice it about ourselves anymore. And I think as we come to this passage, we discover that Peter had some blind spots, and God needed to open his eyes to those blind spots because these these things in Peter's life were hindering the advancement of God's kingdom. They were hindering the spread of the gospel. And so what did God have to do? God had to proverbially proverbially knock Peter on his butt. 
right? That's the best theological term I can come up with for what God is doing in the life of Peter in this passage. Because God had to open Peter's eyes to his blind spots. And in the process, we see Peter has a conversion of the heart. And I think it's a great reminder that sometimes God needs to do the same thing in our hearts. He has to do the same thing for you and I. So this morning, I want us to see that sin or, or our blind spots uh, have a tendency of narrowing our view of the kingdom of God. And then I want us to see how grace reorders and expands our view of God's kingdom. And so let's start by considering that first point. And the first point is essentially this, that our, our deep-rooted sinfulness can cause blind spots in our lives, and those blind spots can at times narrow our view of the kingdom of God. And I think the cause of a lot of this is sin. So at first, it's good to be reminded of what we mean when we talk about the word sin in church. Uh, one of the things we tell our communicants when we encourage them in the faith is we help them understand what this, this word sin means. And what we tell them that sin is anything that you think, anything you say, or anything that you do that is out of accord with God's will and God's design. And I think that's an important definition for us all to consider because when we think about sin, we often only think about the things that we do, right? I did that bad thing. And of course, those are sins. They're called sins of commission. Uh, but there are, there, are, there, are, there are other vast networks to sin as well. There are what are called sins of omission. That is not doing the right thing when we should be doing it. That's a sin of omission. But we also have to think of sin in terms of patterns, patterns of thinking or even sinful habits that exist in our hearts. And when we think about sin that way, we can see that it affects our thought life, it affects the way we view the world, it affects our perspective on what's happening all around us. And if that's all true, then that means that there are places in our life where sin has blinded us and has deceived our hearts, where, where we're engaged in some sort of sinful pattern and we're not even aware of it. And I think these are good to think about as blind spots. They're blind spots. And I think it's so humbling for us to think that all of us have them, right? All of us have these blind spots. And so part of growing in the faith is, is coming to terms with these sinful things, these sinful patterns in our life. And I think God is in the business of graciously, and sometimes it's painful, sometimes painfully opening our eyes to these blind spots that exist in our lives. I think we see this with Peter. And in this passage, I think what we see is one of Peter's blind spots takes center stage. And what we see in Peter is that his blind spot was a deep-seated racial prejudice. And what God had to do is he had to open Peter's eyes to see that his racial prejudice was getting in the way of God's expanding kingdom. God had to knock Peter on his butt when it came to this issue. Now, as we think about this, I want us to be really careful because we need to be. 
Um, I want us to be really careful because history uh, rarely offers us straight lines, rarely offers us straight lines. And so, what I mean by that is I don't think it's wise for us to draw a straight line between Peter's racial prejudice and the racial prejudice that we see in our day. I think those two things are, are very different. I think it's tricky to draw a straight line between those two things. But as we think about Peter's story, I do believe it does give us something to think about when it comes to the racial injustice that we see in our culture today. So I think we have to be careful in that aspect. I also think we need to be careful that um, we don't fall victim to a sort of chronological snobbery when it comes to this story and other stories that we read about in history. Chronological snobbery is something that that C.S. Lewis talked about. And what that looks like is this. We have the tendency to look at Peter's story and to wonder, how could he be so blind to this? Uh, And we start to think, I would not have fallen victim to this same blind spot that Peter had fallen victim to. And I think we can do this all over the place. We're we're reading a book uh, as a church on the the American church's complicity in uh, the history of racism here in American culture. And in it, we read stories about things that have happened in our history that, that come all the way up to today. And there's been points, even as I've read this book, where I've wondered, why didn't people of faith, whether it was during the Civil War era or the Civil Rights era, why didn't people of faith stand up and, and speak against horrible things like lynchings and inhumane treatment? And I've had to wonder, how could Christians have been so blind to this at these moments in history. And so I think it's easy whenever we consider history, and particularly whenever we consider Peter's story, it's easy for us to cast judgment on Peter or to cast judgment on others for some pattern of thinking or pattern of heart that they had become locked into or even blind to. I think the better response is this. I think that we all have to humbly ask this question. If they were so blind to it, then what am I blind to in my own life? What am I blind to in my own life? Or how will history look back on our era and wonder how we could have been so blind about things in our cultural moment? To wonder how will history judge our era? How will history judge our culture, to really ask, what is the blindness that God needs to root out of our lives? Now, as we look at Peter's story, we see that his blind spot had to do with a racial prejudice. And if you've read any of the New Testament or any of the Gospels, you know very quickly that Peter was uh, Jewish, uh, that Jesus Christ was Jewish. And pretty much up until this point in the story of Christianity, all the followers of Jesus Christ were Jewish. But what the book of Acts helps everyone to see is that God's kingdom is bigger than all of that. If you know anything about the first century culture, you know that the Jews did not like the Gentiles, did not like non-Jews, and really the feeling was mutual. Uh, The Gentiles didn't think uh, very much of the Jews either. 
But what's interesting to think about the Jewish culture of this time is their beliefs related to the Gentile nation. You see, Jews didn't believe the Gentiles should be treated any better than the dogs that are playing around in the streets. Uh, It was forbidden uh, for Jews to converse or to relate to Gentiles whatsoever. Uh, They couldn't dine with Gentiles. They couldn't have a meal with a Gentile because they believed that that would make them religiously unclean. And of course, if you couldn't eat, if you couldn't break bread with a Gentile, you couldn't even enter the home of a Gentile. Because if you did, that would make them spiritually dirty in their own eyes. And so what you have to notice is that this wasn't just a racial prejudice, but it was a prejudice that had a spiritual veneer or a spiritual connotation over it as well. And so John Stott said that it is difficult to fully grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. But of course, what we see from the book of Acts and all over God's scripture is this, that God's kingdom is in the business of building bridges, not raising walls. And so what God would need to do here is he would need to lovingly confront Peter's racial and religious prejudice in order to expand the message of the gospel and expand the kingdom of God. What's remarkable at the end of our passage, and and we, if we don't understand the cultural moment of what's happening, it's it's hard for us to to understand the sort of shock and amazement of what's actually happening here. But at the end of our passage, Peter enters the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion who is a Gentile. That was earth-shattering for a Jew. In complete shock and amazement, Peter enters his home, He shares the gospel with him. He dines with him as a Gentile. He even probably lives with him as a Gentile for a few days. And at the end of our passage, he becomes a spiritual brother to a Gentile. And so that's an amazing thing that happened in this culture. But before all that could happen, before this amazing end of the story, before all that could happen, God had to open Peter's eyes to his blind spot. And he did it through a series of three dreams. And if you remember from the passage, at one point, uh, Peter is hungry. He's waiting for people to prepare the food. Uh, and he's on, uh, he, he, he's, uh, on the, the roof of the home, and he gets caught up into a trance, and he sees uh, uh, the heavens open up and a great sheet descending from heaven that's full of all types of animals. And of course, Peter, it tells us, is hungry, and so God capitalizes on that. And God uh, tells Peter to kill and eat. Well, Peter, uh, brazen Peter, uh, says to God, he's offended by what God has said, right? And he says to God, "I, I can't do this, God. I can't kill and eat. He objects because some of those animals are clean and some of them are unclean. Some are ritually acceptable and others are ritually unacceptable. But God lovingly and graciously reminds Peter what? He reminds him that he gets to define what is clean and what is unclean. And so as Peter is pondering all this, 
an opportunity to apply this teaching comes knocking at Peter's door. And he discovers that a Gentile, a Gentile named Cornelius, a God-fearing man, has sent for Peter. People have wondered, well, what, is, what does it mean by he's a God-fearing man? Well, most believe that, that Cornelius was a Gentile who had discovered the futility of the pagan religion that was all around him. He had sort of looked through the store window at Judaism. He'd sort of uh, pressed his face against the glass, as one commentator said, looking from the outside in and seeing some truth in the Jewish religion. And so that made him a God-fearing man. But of course, we learn at the beginning of the passage that the whole initiative for this is that an angel comes to Cornelius and instructs him to send for Peter. And so now his messengers have come. They want Peter to come and to meet Cornelius. So Peter, in obedience, travels the nine to ten hours. Uh, he enters into Cornelius' home. He shares with him the good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 38, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day. And before the words can even come out of Peter's mouth, before he even finishes his sermon, Cornelius and everyone else who was gathered around there were converted to Christ. The passage tells us that the Holy Spirit rushes upon them just as it did to those Gentile believers on Pentecost just a few chapters earlier in the book of Acts. And Peter, witnessing this whole thing, says, let's have a baptism. Let's have a baptism today. He can't imagine what he has just seen. And so this is a watershed moment in so many different ways. It's reminding everybody that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews, he came for everyone. The kingdom of God isn't just for the Jewish nation, it extends to all peoples, it extends to all languages, it extends to all cultures. This is so much bigger than anyone else expected because the grace of God extends to all. It is made available to all people. You see, I think grace, that word grace, really is the operative principle here in this passage. Because Cornelius uh, is found by grace. Grace finds Cornelius and it converts him in his spirit. But I think grace also finds Peter and has to convert Peter's heart as well. Which really brings home that second thing that I wanted us to see this morning, that grace reorders and expands our view of what the kingdom of God is really all about. You see, it was grace that opened Peter's eyes to his racial prejudice. And all of this is a wonderful reminder that grace isn't just the defining principle as we enter the journey of faith. Of course, we, we see Cornelius being found by grace at the beginning of his journey of faith. But what we also see is that grace is also the defining principle of every step on this path of faith. And we see that exemplified in Peter's conversion of heart here this morning. And so what that reminds us is that grace is at the beginning of the faith, but grace is always the heartbeat 
of the walk of faith as well. We never grow past it. We never get to a point of spiritual maturity where we don't need God's grace anymore. It defines every step of this up and and down journey of faith. And so what should we make of this passage? What should we make of this passage as we think about faith? Well, I have to admit, from time to time, uh, we're, you know, hanging out at the house, and from time to time, uh, my, my, my wife might ask me, hey, do you mind putting away that, uh, that uh, basket of laundry uh, that's sitting over there? And uh, I'll agree, and I'll, I'll look at the passage, and I'll say, well, how long, how long has that been there? How long has that been sitting there? And she will graciously and kindly say to me, well, it's been sitting there for three days. And, and nobody's done anything with it. Would you mind doing something with it? And I have to honestly say, sweetheart, that's the very first time I've seen that basket of laundry sitting there, even though it's been sitting there for three days. Well, friends, we all have blind spots. We all have things that we miss about our lives. We all have things that might even be obvious to other people, but we are entirely blind to. Maybe it's a racial prejudice. Uh, that we've become totally unaware of in our hearts. Maybe it's a a deep-seated judgmentalism that tends to come out in our language and uh, in our hearts. Maybe it's some sort of idolatry, something in our lives that that we've raised to a God-ish level or that's a God replacement in our lives. It can be so many things because sin is far much deeper than just our behavior, and it's often far deeper than what we realize. But the good news is this, and don't ever forget the good news, because the good news is that Jesus died for our known sins and our unknown sins. Isn't that good news? He died for our known sins and our unknown sins. He died for our willful rebellion, and he died for our blind spots as well. God is gracious to us in his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. It reminds us that his grace is bigger than our sin. And at that moment of salvation that we saw take hold of Cornelius' heart, at that moment of salvation, grace overwhelms all of our sin, all of it. Grace is always bigger than the depth of our sin. But friends, also know that God is also gracious in opening our eyes to these things, in opening our eyes to the blind spots, in opening our eyes to the things that get in the way of our relationship with Him because His grace is always operative and it is always drawing us closer to Him. One of the things we'll see next week, so I hope you come back next week, is that God even at times places other people in our lives to be the instrument of opening our eyes to those blind spots. And in the process, other people become the instruments of His grace in our hearts. And so, friends, let me encourage you with this. As we manage the ups and downs of this walk of faith, know that God's grace is with us every single step of the way. It's bigger than our prejudices. It's bigger than our blind spots. It is bigger than all of our sins. Let's pray.